So for the sermon, we're continuing in our series, as you'd probably expect. We've been in the book of Genesis in our In the Beginning series, looking at that first book of the Bible, just sort of walking our way through, sort of chronologically, chapter by chapter. Uh, and today we're going to continue with that. So today we're going to be taking a look at actually really two stories and sort of bringing them together a little bit and looking at them in tandem. We're going to be looking at the story of the flood, certainly one that's probably quite familiar to, I'd imagine, all of us, the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, and then we're also going to be taking a look at the story of the Tower of Babel as well. And so we're going to be in Genesis. We're not going to read the whole of the story of the flood. That's a bit long. But we're going to sort of look at certain parts of it. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 6 here, uh, verses 1 through uh, 11 through 14, and then uh, we'll pick up then a few verses later, 17 through 19. You can even flip there, and that way you'll be ready when it comes time to read. We're then going to jump to, you don't have to go there yet, but jump to chapter 9 of Genesis and then chapter 11 as well. So we'll jump around a little bit here, but before we dive in and look at first the story of the flood, uh, there's just a little bit that I want to mention about this story of the flood, which is pretty interesting and significant, and maybe some people are aware of this, some people maybe not, but uh, it isn't just that there's a story about this grand epic flood in the Bible and nowhere else, but in fact a whole host of ancient peoples and cultures have this story of this incredible epic flood that just sort of wiped out life. Of course, there was still some life that was preserved, but we see this really all over the face of the earth, whether it's the Americas and, and Native American tribes or over in Europe or, or Asia. And I think it's pretty fascinating. I don't need added evidence from outside of the Bible to believe the story of the flood, but I still think it's always interesting uh, and fascinating when you do see some extra biblical evidence that really supports something in the Bible. And in particular, this is one of those stories that people might be a little bit critical of if they don't adhere to sort of, you know, the inerrancy of, of Scripture and believing that this is all the Word of God. People who maybe don't believe that, they come to this story and it's like, come on, you want me to believe that there's this huge flood and just tons of water just sort of pours from the heavens and it covers the whole face of the earth and, you know, this guy Noah just builds this big boat and somehow he survives and, and you know, there's two of every animal and they survive and then eventually they get off and repopulate the earth. They might think, oh, that's a little far-fetched and tough to believe. And yet in virtually it seems like every culture, right, these ancient cultures that go back a long ways, there is remembrance of this wondrous, incredible, grand flood and certainly people who are secular, they may try to come up with some other explanation of some lesser flood that still somehow mankind has remembered. But I look at it and I say, this is clearly evidence supporting that this flood really happened. And even in the pagan cultures all around, they still remember that flood. And they may have tweaked and varied some of the, the bits of the story here and there and added their own little, little bits to it or mythology. But ultimately, sort of that, that core bit of that story, that there was this grand epic flood that sort of wiped out life or nearly wiped out life, still remains in so many different cultures all over the face of the earth. And to me, I just look at that and see all this added evidence and sort of support of this story. Again, not that I need it. I believe it just because it's here in Scripture. I don't need any further evidence. Uh, but I think it's interesting to see that type of thing and that added evidence as well, even outside of the Bible. So it's just a little note about that. But now let's dive right in here. We're in Genesis chapter 6. As I said, we'll start at verse 11. And it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, 
I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. And so this sort of, we're sort of laying the groundwork of this whole story of right, this flood, this huge flood that sort of covers the face, the whole face of the earth. And basically the starting point is, well, mankind has just become so thoroughly wicked and evil in the sight of God that God basically says, I'm just, I'm not going to put up with them any longer. But of course, and this is something that we're going to talk about here, we're going to really look at two themes as we look at the story of the flood and also as we look at the Tower of Babel as well. And the two major themes, so you can sort of keep this in your head as we read through, are that of, on the one hand, the relentless evil of mankind, right? And that's sort of what we see, whether it's, you know, you sort of back up even earlier in Genesis and, well, you have Adam and Eve and they disobey the Lord. Well, then, you know, what's the next story? Well, then Cain, right, the next generation he goes and he, he murders his brother, right? And it's not like, well, from there to the flood, like man's behaving well and doing great. But, but no, certainly they're still continuing in great evil. You have stories of a guy by the name of Lamech, a descendant of Cain, who basically says, well, if Cain's avenged seven times over, surely I should be avenged 77 times over. So this, this guy who wounds him, this is a very short narrative and story in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't take up much space. But basically someone who injures him in some way, and he says, well, you know what, so I'm going to murder him in return, right? And so the evil just sort of persists, it's relentless, all the way down here to the story of the flood. And God says, man, it's just relentless in doing evil, and so I'm going to wipe them out, right? But what we see in the midst of this, even as man is relentlessly evil, not just the flood, but then we jump to the Tower of Babel, continuing in evil, even in the midst of that, even as God does punish, and he does punish with the flood, or at the Tower of Babel, he punishes by confusing their languages, right? Um, that's part of that story there. But even in the midst of the punishment, God is still merciful and gracious, right? With the story here, and this is what we're going to see and talk about a little bit with Noah, he could say, Noah, you're not perfect, right? You're not perfectly righteous in my sight as though you've never done any wrong. I could wipe you out with the rest of mankind and just do away with mankind. And yet he's gracious, he's merciful, he spares mankind, he spares the animals, right? A lot of them die, I don't mean that, but two of each so that then creation can continue, right? He spares mankind. And so what we're going to see here as we go through that um, God is long-suffering and merciful and gracious. Even though he does punish, and these are stories that certainly are about the punishment that God brings against wicked, evil mankind, even in the midst of that we see as man is relentlessly evil and as God punishes, he's still very patient with man and merciful and gracious. So, reading on here, we read verse 14. We're now going to jump to 17. It says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Right, and I'll sort of fill in how the story goes. I think we know pretty well, because we're going to then jump to chapter 9, and that's sort of the end of the story a little bit. But, right, so the rain ultimately comes, right? God has decided this is what he's going to do. He's going to destroy the earth with a flood, but he will be gracious, right? He will be merciful, even as he's punishing mankind for man's relentless evil. He's still going to be gracious and merciful and spare man. And in particular, he's gracious and merciful to Noah, but even to all mankind by allowing man 
to continue to exist, even though he certainly doesn't deserve right to continue to exist. Man is evil, and that includes Noah, right? And even Noah would justly deserve God's condemnation, but God's merciful, he's gracious. So this is his plan. He said, go build the ark, right? And ultimately the rain comes, right? Uh, the sort of the heavens open up and the rain just pours and pours and pours 40 days 40 nights and the level of the water right it rises and it rises and rises and covers the whole face of the earth uh, and of course what does that mean right all life other than those in the ark they're all they all perish right uh, all animals mankind as well uh, that live on the land they all perish um, and so then Noah and, and those with him and, and the animals there, they're sort of hanging out after, in the ark after it stops raining. But it takes a little bit of time, and the water slowly, they recede and recede and, and go down and go down. And ultimately, the ark lands on Mount Ararat, right? And so it, it winds up on dry ground, and ultimately things continue to dry out a little bit more, and they're able to get off, right? They get off of the ark. And then this is sort of where we pick up now, Genesis chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. So let's read it. It says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Already, probably we're sort of, as we read that verse, we're thinking, that sounds a little bit familiar, right? Where do I think of the language of, well, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth? We probably think, oh, that sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And there's significance to that. What's going on here, right, is a reaffirmation or renewal of a covenant. And this was a, a common practice in the ancient Near East that if you had, say, two nations, right, and they had some sort of treaty, some sort of arrangement, some sort of covenant, uh, and it would be between the two nations, but certainly centrally between the two leaders, the kings, and then if one of them died and then his son would sort of come to the throne, right, it was common practice to renew the covenant. Now that it was sort of the next generation had taken over, they would sort of renew, reaffirm that covenant that was already in place. And that's what's going on here, and that's why the language is awfully similar, because it's a renewal of a covenant, of the creation covenant. Now, if we were sort of go back and look at all of the wording of the story of, of creation, we'd say, well, nowhere there do we actually see the word covenant. It doesn't specifically say, oh, there's clearly a covenant here that is made between God and man and so forth. But if we think of ancient Near Eastern uh, treaty covenant forms, they had certain stock forms that they would use. All of the elements are there if we look at those beginning chapters of Genesis. And so it's quite clear that there was a creation covenant between God and man. Right? And what's going on here is this is a renewal. In a sense, if you think about it, right, if all life on, on land has been wiped out other than, uh, of course, here we have uh, Noah and his wife, his kids, their wives, right? And now all the animals have been killed except for the ones that have been, you know, put on the ark, and now they're sort of getting off the ark. In a sense, it's like things are starting over a little bit, right? It's not that God's really creating again, but in a sense, it's like things are starting over. And so it's a very appropriate time to sort of renew that creation covenant, and that's what's taking place here in this covenant that God makes with Noah. It's, this Noahic covenant is really a renewal of the creation covenant. So it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. 
Right? Again, this, this is somewhat similar to the story of creation, right? Just as God said, oh, I give all of the plants, right, as food to, to mankind, but also to the animals, right? We see the same thing happening here, but now it's not just the plants that are for you to eat mankind, but now I give you everything, including the animals. And interesting to note, right, maybe we've never thought about this, but prior to this point, man was not to eat animals. That doesn't mean that it couldn't have ever taken place if man had become so wicked, man may have chosen to do that at some point. But prior to this, man was just to continue as was commanded, think of sort of in the garden, Garden of Eden, uh, man was just to eat vegetation, plants, fruits, crops. But now God says, I'll make provision for you and I'll allow you to eat animals as well. So, going on there, he sort of qualifies it a little bit here, though, if we read verse 4. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Uh, it literally, says you must not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. I would say here we shouldn't, as we're reading this, interpret this sort of in light of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, and think that this is sort of like kosher laws, kind of, and it's about how you have to kill an animal and make sure you drain all the blood. That's not, not what's going on here. I think it could be easy to misinterpret in that way, but very literally what's being said is don't eat an animal alive. I would say that's very much the intent. Don't eat an animal with its life still in its flesh. Uh, with its blood still coursing through its veins. And you might think that seems like a little bit of a bizarre command, like would man be that prone to doing that? Uh, but I mean, if you sort of think of just backing up the relentless evil of mankind prior to this, then why not? And even if you think of man's experience watching how flesh gets eaten as they watch a lion devour its prey or so forth, their experience of, well, how do you eat an animal might be, well, you sort of just pounce on it and you just sort of eat it right then and there. Just like a hawk would swoop down and grab some sort of rodent and just eat it alive. Or a lion might or some other animal. Um, or some of them might kill them first and then immediately after that dive right in and eat. But the point is don't be barbaric in the way that you eat this animal. Right? He's saying I'm giving you animals to eat but there should be a sense of respect and appreciation for life. And so you shouldn't be barbaric in the way that you consume whatever animal it is, a sheep, a goat, a cow, whatever it might be, right? There should be sort of a respect and appreciation for, for life. And so he's saying, don't eat anything alive. Don't, don't do that. That's what's being said there. It's not that here we have a command, and this is, right, not just for Jews. This is, would include all nations, and it's a command not to eat meat with blood in it. And so are we supposed to now follow kosher laws in some way? I wouldn't interpret it in that way. I don't think that's all what's being meant. It's just saying, don't eat animals alive. Don't be barbaric. I'm giving them to you for food, but be respectful of life. So going on, verse 5. And for your lifeblood... I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So basically, to put it simply, you know, if you kill someone, what's the penalty? It's death, right? You ought not to kill. Whether it's an animal that kills a man, he says, whether it's a man that kills a man, he'll demand an accounting for that, and the punishment is death. Then going on, verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you, 
Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Now, I want to talk about this, this rainbow thing uh, because I think there's, there's some significance and we want to understand sort of the historical context. Uh, and in the ancient Near East, it was a common motif that sort of a warrior or warrior king who'd go out and do battle, right? He'd go and do that. That was sort of what would come with the territory. But then when he was done, he'd come back and he'd sort of hang up his bow on the wall as if I'm done with war, I'm done with battle, and now peace. And I'd say that's what's going on here. That's, that's what God is saying here. In a sense, it's like he's hanging up his bow. No longer will he bring war, in a sense, against mankind for man's evil, but rather, of course, he will be gracious. He will be long-suffering with mankind. And even if they become awfully evil, and they will, he will not destroy them again with a flood. And so I'd say that's the symbolism there, if we understand it in its ancient Near Eastern context. It's sort of he's hanging up uh, the bow, hanging up sort of his war, uh, his weaponry, in a sense, and won't do this again to mankind. That's what's being said there. So sort of Summing up the flood, we're then going to go on to the Tower of Babel as well, but I'd say we see here, and sort of as we lump these two together, we're going to continue to see as it's sort of time after time after time, this first point that I wanted to drive home is just sort of the relentless evil of mankind. And that's not like a pleasant topic that, oh, we love to talk about. We're oh so evil, we're oh so terrible. But we see it in Scripture. It's just the way it is, right? Whether it's with Cain and then one of his descendants, Lamech, and on and on, and, and the flood and the tower. And then you could go and look at just Israel, right? Even if you go past Genesis and you just look at the story of Israel, whether it's in the time of the judges, and it was sort of like this rinse and repeat process of, well, they'd maybe be faithful to the Lord for a while, but then they'd forsake him. So he'd raise up an enemy, right? One of the nations around them, and they'd oppress Israel, and they'd cry out to God. And so he'd be gracious, he'd be merciful, right? But then it wouldn't take very long, right? He'd deliver them, but then it wouldn't take very long, and what would they be doing? They'd be right back at it, worshiping false gods, continuing to pursue evil. Uh, and that's just sort of the story of history through the ages, that man sort of relentlessly pursues evil, not very surprisingly, because, well, what do you expect sinful man to do? Pursue evil, right? That's sort of what sinful man does. Um, but what we also see in the midst of this is that God is just patient and long-suffering. He bears with man, even in spite of man's evil. Even as he punishes, we see that he is still merciful and gracious, right? He doesn't totally wipe out mankind here with the flood. He could. He would have had every right to. He could have done it right after Adam and Eve. He could have done it with the, with the flood here. He could have done it whenever he, he so desired. He could have said, I'm done with man. Man is evil. He's done wicked in my sight, and I'm, I'm just done. I'm going to cast him into hell. End of story. And he would have been just. He would have been right in doing so. But God is merciful, and he's gracious, and he spares mankind here. He spares Noah, Noah's family, and he spares mankind as a whole. And I'd say it's not just that 
he's gracious and merciful to Noah right here. But I'd say that there's something bigger in view here. God spares Noah and his family for a purpose, right? There's something bigger in view. He spares mankind for a purpose. And it's this whole plan that he has. If we even think back to earlier in Genesis, right, we see sort of these snippets of the gospel, even right when Adam and Eve have disobeyed the Lord, and we see God saying, but don't worry about it. I'm going to deal with this sin problem. I'll, I'll take care of it, right? That's sort of what's in view here is he's allowing the created order to continue. He's allowing mankind to continue to exist on the earth because ultimately he has this plan to redeem mankind and to restore the whole of the created order and to do it, of course, in Christ, through Christ. And so he, he's gracious here just in the fact that he allows mankind to continue, but there's an even greater mercy and grace that is in view here as God spares Noah and his family, and it's to allow mankind to continue to exist so that he might ultimately send his son, right, Christ Jesus, to the earth to head to a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to make atonement for sin so that we might be forgiven and have life everlasting. And that's the greatest mercy and grace that we see, in a sense, even in the story, even if it's not explicitly stated, that's what's going on. If we think about Scripture, everything is really one more movement ultimately culminating and pointing towards the coming of Christ and the redemption and restoration that's in Him. And so that's what's going on here. Even if it's not explicitly stated, God is being gracious, allowing mankind to continue to exist because He has this great plan of an even greater mercy and grace that He will offer and show toward mankind. But now, sort of jumping to the next story, we're going to see man sort of right back at it, right? We read Genesis chapter 9. If you go into chapter 10, it's just sort of a little bit of, it's a table of nations sort of repopulating the earth a little bit. But then sort of the next thing that man's up to is, well, you know, same old, same old, back to sin, right? Rebelling against the Lord with the Tower of Babel. And so let's read it. This is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So this is the land of ancient Sumer. This is Mesopotamia, if you're wondering. Where's, where's Shinar? I have no idea where that is. This is Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, think sort of Iraq, if you're thinking modern-day world. Um, so they settled there. And this is verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And this isn't, right, we have to understand what's sort of really going on here, what they're doing. This isn't like, let's just make an empire state building. Like, it'd be cool. It'd be nice. Just a nice skyscraper. It's sort of the intent that's behind it, which is let's build this structure to the heavens so that we can sort of be just like God, or they would have viewed it as just like the gods, as they would have had their pagan pantheon. But in a sense, it's this uh, prideful elevation of self as though to the point of divinity. Like, we're going to be like God. We're going to exalt ourselves to the place of God. And God says, uh, no, you're not. That's not how it works, right? You are not like I am. You are much lower. And so what does he do, right? So, but the Lord came down to see the city. Not that he really had to come down and see the city. He knew what was going on, but he makes sort of official inspection of what's going on, right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Right now, it's not that God is literally trying to say man is all-powerful and can do literally whatever he wants. It's a bit of hyperbole, sort of as a, a literary device. He's being hyperbolic here. But the point is, if they're sort of all speaking the same language and sort of working together, and working together in pursuit of evil, right, just think if you leave them to their own devices and let them collaborate in doing evil, think of the extent of evil that they can and will perpetrate. So what does he do is if he, 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 of course, decides that he's going to confuse their languages, right? Uh, so that they can't understand one another. Speaking different languages, well, it's, it's awfully difficult to sort of collaborate on something if you can't even understand what, what the other person is saying. And so he confuses the languages, right? Of course, then they're not able to collaborate in doing evil, and so that lessens the extent of their evil in a sense. So that's what happens. He says, if there's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Babel means confusion, so appropriate, right? In verse 7 it says, let us go down and confuse their language, and so it's called confusion. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Right, and so in the story, again, think of sort of the two main points that I want to emphasize. We see mankind, again, sort of relentlessly pursuing evil. It's not that that's this great news that we love talking about, but it's sort of the reality of sinful fallen man that even after the flood, you'd think, oh, man, certainly man's going to learn his lesson, right? Not going to sort of pursue evil as man did before the flood, and then they got wiped out. Maybe they'll learn, but they don't, of course. They're sort of right back at it, exalting themselves to the place of God, building this tower to the heavens, right? And it's not that it ends here. You just see it time and time again in Scripture. And so we see that reality that man is sort of relentless in doing evil. And certainly God punishes, and we see that in both of these stories, right? He punishes here in the one we just read. He confuses their languages, certainly a consequence of, of what they had done. But if we think about it, too, what we see in this is still, again, God's great mercy and grace, right? And that God is long-suffering and continues to bear with sinful man. You think sort of, you know, after the flood, man's already done all this evil stuff, and then he's right back at it. You could imagine God might say, I'm going to be pretty harsh with these people. They keep just diving headfirst into sin, and yet the reality is the consequence that he bear, brings upon them is, is awfully light considering what man rightfully deserves, right? It might seem like a significant consequence, confusing the languages, scattering them over the face of the earth, but if they deserve eternal death and this is what they get, uh, it doesn't mean they won't get eternal death if they refuse to turn toward the Lord, of course, but at this point what they get is just the confusion of their languages and being scattered. We realize that God's actually being merciful, being lenient, right, and showing grace. And again, he allows them to continue to exist. He could say here rightfully, man just will not stop, will not stop pursuing this endless evil. I'm just done with him. I'm just done. I'm going to wipe him out and be done with it. But God is gracious. He says, I'm going to continue to bear with man again, knowing full well how things are going to continue to play out. The man will still continue to pursue evil, yet he says, I will continue to be long-suffering. I will bear with man. I'll bear with his his evil. I will show mercy. I will show grace. Allow man to continue to exist, ultimately, so that I might carry out this wondrous, glorious plan in Christ to offer redemption and to ultimately restore everything to perfection. And in that we see, in the greatest way, the mercy and grace of God.
But so sort of recapping here, and I want to really apply what we've learned as we always do, but we see in these stories, we see certainly man pursuing evil time and time again, seemingly endlessly. We see God punishing, but we see in the midst of it all, God's patience, that he's long-suffering, that he's merciful, that he's gracious. But a good question to ask is to sort of say, well, so what? How, how, what do we learn? You know, we can sort of learn from this academically in a sense, but to say, how do I change how I live my life in light of this? And I'd say the first thing, I want to sort of give an application point for each of the two main points that we looked at. The first being that man is relentlessly evil. And I'd say that I think in our world today, as followers of Christ, it can be easy to sort of look around us and say, oh, it just looks like the world is falling apart. And, and people all around the world, they just seem bent on evil and greater and greater evil, whatever that is. You know, first they're pushing, you know, an abortion agenda, and they win that back in the 70s. But then they're not there. Then it's pushing, you know, homosexuality and gay rights and this and that. But then when they win that battle, that's not, not enough. And it's transgender issues or whatever it might be. And it seems like there's always a, the next step of whatever that new evil thing is that they want to push, promote, and, and ultimately see reign. And so there's certainly around us a sense in which evil seems to be growing and people seem to be pursuing sin in, in an ever-increasing way. And I think it's easy as Christians, especially looking back even just, you know, just over the span of one person's life, I can think of hearing stories from my dad. He's still alive and with us and in his 70s. And he can think back to when he was a kid and when he was in public schools, they said the Lord's Prayer. And now you think about, you know, in just a short span of time, he's still alive and with us, and yet that seems unthinkable in today's world. And so you see this rapid decline. Um, when he went to a private school for high school, they went to chapel every single day. And now that school couldn't be any further from the Lord than they are. They've completely changed. And this seems to be the way of the world. And as a Christian, it's easy to sort of see that and, and sort of for it to really sort of shake you in a sense. And, and I think we sort of become undone a little bit by it. And, and the reality is we should have the mindset of this is nothing new, right? It's easy to lament the fact that things were once a great way, even within our lifetime perhaps, and now things are changing and it seems like sin is just running rampant and what's going on here? And maybe feeling like we're the first generation ever to deal with this thing. And the reality is this is nothing new, right? This is how it's been since the beginning. Right? Man has been relentlessly pursuing evil, and we ought not to be sort of shattered or shaken by it or undone, but rather recognize it's nothing new. God's in control. This is no surprise to him, and he has a plan, and he's working it all out and bringing it ultimately to a wondrous, glorious conclusion, bringing it to fruition. And then I'd say our second application point is we recognize, right, that not only do we see in these stories man's relentless evil, that God does punish evil, but we see that he's patient and that he bears with mankind. He's long-suffering, he's merciful, he's gracious. The first point should be really just to, to celebrate that character of God, that God is indeed that way, that he is gracious, that he is merciful towards us, right? And, and just rejoice in that, celebrate that, delight in that. But I want to take it a step further and to recognize that we're called to reflect God's character. And I think it's easy to sort of say, ooh, I, I love the idea of God bearing with me when I mess up. I love the idea of him being merciful to me and gracious to me. But then when I'm sort of called to be that same way to somebody else, right, whoever that difficult person is in your life, you know, or, or maybe multiple people, and you can sort of think of them and you, you recognize, well, now God calls me to bear with that person. He calls me to show mercy to that person. And I'm supposed to be gracious to that person. Suddenly we don't love that idea so much. We want to be the recipients of all those things 
things, but we don't always want to show those things. But the reality is we are called as followers of God to reflect his character. And so I want to challenge us, as we've seen in this, these stories, that God is long-suffering and merciful and gracious to recognize. We need to be that way as well, right? As people maybe push our buttons and they're difficult and it's just hard to deal with them, we need to remember, right? It can be all too easy to sort of say, I'm done with you, I don't want to deal with you, you know, or be mean back to that person, but to recognize, no, we need to love that person as God has loved us, even when we were far from him and his enemies. We need to be patient, we need to bear with that person, we need to show grace and mercy. And so I want to challenge us to really faithfully live that out, to reflect God's character. And if we do that, we're certainly going to be faithful to the Lord. We're going to be a better witness for Him. But ultimately, we're going to glorify God as we faithfully reflect His wondrous and glorious character. So let's do it. Let's be long-suffering. Let's be merciful. Let's be gracious for the Lord, for His kingdom, for His glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, as we read these stories of the flood of the Tower of Babel, we do certainly see man seemingly endlessly pursuing evil. And it's not that different in our day. We see it all around us. Those who are far from you, just diving headfirst into sin. And it can be easy to let it shake us a little bit, maybe to overly dwell on that and what's going on around us, but we shouldn't be surprised when the world behaves like the world, when sinful man behaves sinfully. It's easy to feel like, oh, we're the first generation, and it's so difficult to bear up under it, but Lord, we should recognize it's nothing new, and we should recognize you are in control. You've known that it would happen, you're sovereign over it all, and you're working it all out to a wondrous, glorious conclusion. And we ought to just trust in you, trust in that, and rest in you. And Lord, as we think about, as we see in these passages, not just that you punish, and you do, but that you're also gracious and merciful, and that you bear with sinful man in an enduring way. And we recognize we are to be the same way. We're to reflect that character of yours, and it's not always easy to as people are unloving toward us, cruel maybe at times, harsh. It can be difficult to bear with them, to be merciful, to be gracious, to be loving. And yet it's what you've called us to and help us to live that out faithfully. Holy Spirit, change us on the inside however we need that we might faithfully live this out for you and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.